available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello and welcome from me, Nigel Hewin, to this edition of Outlook, which is being recorded on Wednesday the 3rd of May. Uh, and in this programme this week, we'll be looking at St. Michael and All Saints Ruins Cathedral uh, in the uh, notable buildings of Coventry. Bill will con- conclude his story of snooker, Bees of Glory. Uh, and as you probably know, household coal is no longer being sold, uh, and she looks back at the history of coal and its comforting glow that we've had over the years. And you will also remember that Coventry Station had a refit recently uh, and some changes there. So Sarah went down to give us a report on what it's like there down there now. And finally, uh, Dave and his son Graham go on a trip to Nottingham and visit the caves there. But of course, there's also the news from the centre, sport and your post bag. Um, but as usual, we're going to start with this week's local news with myself and Elaine. Outlook News. The Department for Work and Pensions' new cost of living payments have been suddenly and unexpectedly halted. The GWP said that 4.8 million households had already received the cash boost this month to help with rising costs. The GWP paid out 1.6 million sums of £301 each day on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday last week. 8 million low-income families are due the money overall, including 48,200 in Coventry. But in a social media message posted last Thursday, the department said, The next set of payments will be made on Tuesday, May 2nd, and we will update again when these have been made. If you've not received yours, don't worry. Payments will continue to be made up to May 17th. The change is likely to be due to the bank holiday weekend. Benefits recipients who qualify for the cost of living payments are those who get one of the following. Universal credit, income-based job seekers allowance, income-related employment and support allowance, income support, working tax credit, child tax credit or pension credit. The vast majority of those eligible should receive it before the end of this week, before the Coronation Bank holiday weekend, the DWP has said. It says there is no particular order to the payout, dismissing speculation that it is based on an A to Z of people's surnames, national insurance numbers, or on which benefit they receive. Coventry City of Culture Trust is unlikely to be able to pay back over £4 million to its creditors, according to a report. The charity set up to run Coventry City of Culture Year will only be able to repay debts to former employees and some of what it owes to HMRC, Joint Administrators estimate. Groups owed more than £1 million, Coventry City Council and Assembly Festival Group, won't see a penny unless the Trust recovers significantly more assets than predicted and no other creditors come forward. 
but administrators believe it's unlikely these creditors will receive any money as at this stage, according to a notice of proposal sent out on the 25th of April. The report, seen by the local democracy reporting service, shows little over half a million pounds is expected to be realised from the trust's assets, which are valued at £2.8 million. Some of this amount is uncertain, as it includes an auction of goods forecast to bring in £170,000 and less than £20,000 in book debts still being chased. But the majority of it will go to the cost of administration, leaving less than £100,000 to be distributed out to creditors. Former employees of the Trust will be paid first as ordinary preferential creditors and are due around £24,000, and then a debt of over £100,000 to HMRC has to be covered. HMRC will only get 70 pence in the pound as it is, and the other creditors who are unsecured will get nothing, the report says. Those left out of pocket include Westmoreland's police, who are listed as being owed half a million. The force clarified to the LDRS that this is the second part of a donation to cover policing costs. Other Coventry groups listed as being owed five figures sums include Culture Coventry, the Albany Theatre and Coventry University. The overall level of deficit to creditors is estimated at just under 4.25 million. The administrator has indicated that it will undertake some level of investigation into the financial failure, including the use of the council's £1 million loan. The leader of Coventry City Council and his opposite number have welcomed the signing of a lease that will see the Sky Blues further strengthen their ties to the CBS arena. Fraser's group, which bought the stadium last year following the collapse of Wasps, has entered into an agreement with Coventry City Football Club that will see the Sky Blues play their home games at the ground for the next five years, at the very least. The lease has been applauded equally by both sides of Coventry's political divide. Council leader George Duggins said, I know I speak for the city when I say that I'm delighted the football club has been able to reach an agreement with the owners of the CBS arena to secure its future at the stadium. My position remains unchanged in that we are committed to work with partners to see a continued thriving regeneration of the area around the CBS arena and also a successful football club that plays its games here. Councillor Gary Ridley, leader of the opposition Conservative Party, echoed Councillor Duckin's sentiments. He added, This is great news for Sky Blues fans, as it gives the club the stability that we have all been craving for some time now. It is an exciting time for the football club with the team and its fans enjoying such a successful season, and today's announcement will add to that feel-good factor. Coventry is making headlines after being named as one of Europe's best cities for 2023. The accolade even scooped the city as it's in it, its own article in Time Out magazine. Reporting on the rankings, the magazine said that other cities named on the list came as no shock, but described Coventry as underrated and a dark horse. 
it's certainly a pleasant it's, it's certainly a pleasant list to be included on, as Coventry has previously made the grade for inclusion on other less positive rankings, such as the most dangerous cities in Europe. So what makes a city great? This can be everything from the culture and nightlife to the affordability, community spirit, safety and green space. Residence Consultancy is the firm behind the world best cities rankings. The multiple factors which were considered when creating the list included diversity, experiences, employment levels, walkability, infrastructure, attractions, cultural scenes and even Instagram hashtags. The news was warmly welcomed by West Midlands Mayor Andy Street, who dubbed Coventry the ultimate comeback city. He added, from the Blitz to, the, to a manufacturing powerhouse and now a world-class innovation hub, Coventry today has reinvented itself as the home of the Green Industrial Revolution. Many of the top 20 cities were not a surprise, such as London, which came at number one and was named as the capital of capitals. Edinburgh and Oxford also ranked highly, and Coventry bagged a place at number 98. The study described the city as a people-powered covered hometown, being a hub for the UK's automotive and bicycle industry, making it a worthy ranking spot for being a manufacturing powerhouse through the decades, conquering the recessions, wars and pandemics. The study also took note of Coventry's resilience when the World War II Blitz destroyed the city and killed 500 people, but the city redeveloped and reinvented itself as an education hub and now has two highly regarded universities, Coventry University, ranked number 10 in Europe based on the data, and the University of Warwick. Thousands of athletes are set to descend on Coventry as the UK Corporate Games returns to the city. And this year marks a special anniversary with the event celebrating its 30th year. More than 2,000 people are already signed up to take part in the event, which takes place in August. The University of Warwick will be the hub of the Games, which is supported by the Coventry City Council and the Coventry and Warwickshire Chamber of Commerce as partners. It's the third time the event has been staged in Coventry, with previous events in the city in 2013 and 2019. Businesses from across the region and country take part in a variety of different sporting events and will offer the opportunity for regional businesses to compete against the likes of Barclays, Freeths, Bupa and IBM. Organisations are able to sign up as little as one individual into a solo event through to hundreds of staff taking part in a range of sports. Companies will be placed in a division with other businesses of similar size to ensure that the games are as competitive as possible, with many of the sports also having age categories. Doug White, the games director, said, It's our third visit to the region, starting back in 2013 with the UK Games, and then we returned again in 2019, for a successful European Games. Of course, we were hit by the pandemic like every other event, so this year is an opportunity to return to pre-COVID levels of participation. Having over 2,000 participants already signed up is great news, and this will increase by our entry deadline in July. 
There really is no other event like it because it brings local businesses together with major international and national organisations in a way that only sport can. The games are open to all for the benefit of all and is a fantastic opportunity to bring your teams together. With 21 different sports there is something for everyone whether that's competing in the run to achieve your first 5k or getting back into netball. He added, We have venues across the area hosting different events, including Daytona Tamworth, Stonely Deer Park Golf Club and Stonebridge Golf Course to make it a real region-wide event. The full list of sports includes badminton, basketball, cricket eights, Dragon Boat, Golf, Esports, Hockey, Karting, Netball, Poker, Running, Soccer, Soccer Sixes, Soccer Fives, Softball, Squash, Table Tennis, Tennis, Ten Pin Bowling, Touch Rugby and Volleyball. Police arrested a number of people after the Sky Blues faced Birmingham City at the Coventry Building Society Arena. A total of nine arrests were made after a large disorder broke out near Arena Shopping Park. Offences included assault, affray and possession of a bladed article, West Midlands Police said. Coventry City Football Club went head-to-head with Birmingham, Football Club, Birmingham City Football Club last Saturday. Those detained included a 45-year-old man, a 51-year-old man and a 20-year-old man who were arrested on suspicion of a fray. A 17-year-old boy was also arrested on suspicion of having a knife and cannabis in his possession. An 18-year-old and a 14-year-old boy were arrested on suspicion of assaulting a steward, while a 51-year-old man was arrested on suspicion of assaulting a police officer. A 27-year-old man was arrested on suspicion of assault and a man in his 20s was arrested on suspicion of assaulting a woman but later released. The toilets of the BS, uh, CBS arena on Judd's Lane were also reportedly trashed. Images shared on social media show graffiti sprayed on the walls, sink basins destroyed and a TV left smashed. A full investigation has now been launched by West Midlands Police. Officers say banning orders are being sought for a number of suspects, with the behaviour of, of offenders described as unacceptable. A spokesman for Westminster Police said nine arrests were made after disorder at the football match. Inquiries are going into each incident with football banning orders being sought for a number of the suspects. This amount of disorder at a football match is unacceptable and we are taking strong action to secure prosecutions and banning orders. Fans deserve to be able to attend football matches safely and without fear of violence. Our football officers work hard every week to keep fans safe and will continue to do so. A Coventry man has received a personal letter from Prime Minister Rishi Sunak for his efforts in helping his community. Haroon Motta has just finished running the Boston and London Marathons, raising money for charity rights which provides regular nutritious school meals to vulnerable children around the world. With training and events taking place during Ramadan, it was even more of a challenge. 
But Mr. Motta, who also founded the group Muslim Hikers to encourage more people to get out and enjoy the countryside, has now been rewarded for his efforts. He has been awarded a Points of Light Award and received a personal letter from the Prime Minister. The Points of Lights Award were made by Queen Elizabeth II as head of the Commonwealth to thank inspirational volunteers across the 53 Commonwealth nations for the difference they are making in their communities and beyond. The letter, which Mr Motta posted on Twitter, read, Dear Haroon, Every day I write to someone in our country to thank them for their service to others by naming them as a point of light. So today, I want to thank you for all that you do to promote physical fitness and well-being in South Asian communities and raise thousands of pounds for great causes in memory of your late father. By creating the Active Inclusion Network and groups like Muslim Hikers, you are inspiring so many others to join you in outdoor activities. I am delighted to be able to name you as the UK's 2013.2, no sorry, not 2013, 2013 point of light. On behalf of the whole country, thank you. Mr. Motter ran the world famous Boston Marathon to raise money for Charity Right, which provides regular nutritious meals to vulnerable children. He wanted to give back to the communities that he comes from particularly the South Asian and Muslim communities who champion diversity. On his Twitter page, Mr. Mossa received numerous congratulations, one being from Zara Mohammed, who is the Secretary General of the Muslim Council of Britain. Mr. Mossa's Muslim Hikers Group has been an enormous success, featuring on BBC Countryfile and current affairs show We Are England. A Coventry man's plans to open a new post office in Charlesmore have received support from Coventry South MP Zara Sultana. The Coventry Road Budgeons owner has applied to open a post office at his store, and a petition appealing for this to become a reality has been signed by over 1,250 people. Coventrians living in Charlesmore have been calling for a new post office in the area following the closure of the one on Daventry Road last May. Earlier this week, the Sultana presented the petition to Parliament urging the House of Commons to support a new post office in Charlesmore. Residents feel the next nearest post office service is often overcrowded and too far away, making it inaccessible for those with mobility issues. Budgeon's owner, who started the petition, said, Local people were really affected when the old Daventry Road post office closed. Now they have to travel much further to find the nearest post office and often have to wait in long queues to be seen. I am hopeful that now this petition has been presented to Parliament, my application for a post office will be approved. And for news that won't surprise many, those intent on celebrating the King's coronation might have to brace themselves for thunderstorms and a soaking on Saturday. According to the latest weather radars, a lively band of rain is set to sweep up from the southwest as the day progresses and the downpour could last for days. Thunderstorms are likely for most of England on Coronation Day, 
To make matters worse, the deluge will form part of a nasty nine-day stretch of consecutive rain for some areas of the UK. Forecasters say Coventry, Warwickshire and the rest of the Midlands has the greatest chance of storms, peaking between 1pm and 4pm, when various street parties will be in full swing. It'll be warm enough though, highs of around 18 to 19 degrees centigrade in the south and 14 to 16 in the north, but it won't be dry. A deal has been struck for a new convenience store in a prime location in Coventry City Centre. One Stop Stores is set to move into a unit in the Belgrave Plaza. The new shop is set to open its doors on Friday, May the 26th. Uh, it's in a corner position unit. It sits directly opposite the city's popular Belgrave Theatre and is surrounded by student housing. The off-market deal was struck with the with the Midlands-based convenience store chain by property experts Bromwich Hardy. Tom Bromwich, one of the firm's founding partners, said it would be a great addition to the area. I'm delighted that we've been able to source this deal on behalf of the Plaza Landlords. It's a perfect location for one-stop stores, and the 15-year lease shows a sense of optimism in Coventry as it undergoes significant regeneration and enjoys the benefits of its time as city of culture. Belgrade Plaza is one of Coventry's premier leisure destinations and securing this deal demonstrates the value of a good location. Our graduate surveyor Mark Booth and I were able to use our detailed knowledge of the local property market to good effect to seal this deal off market. A popular trader from Coventry has turned the open sign on his shop door for the very last time. Arthur Harrison, 73, opened his first enterprise, Arthur's Food Store, in Stony Stanton Road, way back in 1969, before moving the business to Hexworthy Avenue in Stichel. But he's perhaps best known as the life and soul of Byright, the hardware store he launched in Kenilworth in 1991. Byright was well loved by residents of the Warwickshire town, who almost went into mourning when news of Arthur's impending departure surfaced in February. A fixture on Station Road, close to the junction with Warwick Road, Byright was seen as a bastion of independent trade in an increasingly capitalist retail sector. Arthur himself was considered by many a lovable reminder of a bygone age of going the extra mile customer service and personal interaction. Arthur had been considering retirement, but his hand was forced when his landlord told him of their intention to relinquish the building as part of plans under consultation for flats and new shops. I'm 73 now and I want to move on, so it's come at the right time for me, he said. It will be a sad moment when I close, because I really do like the customers. It's a really nice place to have a shop. I've been really well supported by people in the town. They seem to like me. One person suggested some sort of civic honour for the Coventry-based businessman. Arthur should be invited to switch the Christmas lights on this year, he said. Close friend and entrepreneur Paul Townsend said, He's the last of a unique breed of retailer, the likes of which we'll never see again. 
He's as customer-orientated as a businessman could be. Every morning and every night, you'd see him carrying all his stock, which was considerable, in and out of the shop. He's a unique character, and the town will dearly miss him. Roadworks can be a pain for motorists and pedestrians wherever they occur. Whether you're travelling into the city or out of town, roadworks can add to your journey time and, of course, can create an extra hazard for the visually impaired. Coventry has ongoing roadworks from Binley Cycleway to Carriageway Resurfacing Works, which is causing major disruption around the city. There are lots of roadworks in Coventry this week, uh, so here's a list of the ones you'll need to be aware of. Spon End, Butts Road and Alsley Old Road work until October the 7th. Ringway Rudge until Friday the 30th. Croft Road until Wednesday, August the 16th. Upper Spon Street Road closure until June the 30th. Bindley Road for the Bindley Cycleway until June the 30th. Brinklow Road also until June the 30th. Charter Avenue cycleway installation until Friday, June the 2nd. And finally, Clifford Bridge Road carriageway resurfacing until Friday, May the 12th. A special royal trail focusing on Coventry's history has been created for residents and visitors to the city to follow during the coronation weekend celebrations in the thunderstorms. Coventry has almost a thousand years of links to royalty and everyone is welcome to indulge themselves in this rich history over the bank holiday weekend. Visit Coventry has launched a new campaign to celebrate history and heritage in the city and put together a list of places to visit that showcase how royal connections have shaped the city's past, present and future. Coventry has been no stranger to royal visits and last welcomed King Charles III and Camilla, Queen Consort, in 2021 during our year as the City of Culture. But Coventrians and visitors to the city can explore royal connections dating back to the 11th century. Coventry was granted to Leofric, Earl of Mercia, in 1043 by King Canute. Lady Godiva was the wife of Leofric, and a statue of Lady Godiva was unveiled in the city centre in 1949. Visitors can still see the statue today in the heart of Broadgate, which will host a free family street party for the city on May the 7th. Coventry's Charterhouse has recently reopened its doors, but was itself visited by royalty 638 years ago. The Charterhouse gained its first royal patrons in King Richard II and his Queen Anne of Bohemia. The King laid the foundation stone of the new Church of Carthusians on a visit in September 1385. Visitors to St Mary's Guildhall in the city centre can marvel at the Coventry Tapestry, which is over 500 years old and thought to be the oldest tapestry still in its original location in Britain. The tapestry depicts a couple thought to be Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou, who both had a close relationship with the city of Coventry. Queen Elizabeth II laid the foundation stone at the new Coventry Cathedral in 1956, 
and returned in 1962 for its consecration. The cathedral remains one of the country's most impressive pieces of architecture and will be holding a service in celebration of the coronation on May the 7th. By visiting Coventry Canal Basin, the Herbert Art Gallery and Museum, and Coventry Library, visitors in the city centre can follow in the footsteps of King Charles III and Camilla, Queen Consort, on their visit in 2021. The 1980 Austin Mini Metro L, which was once owned by Diana, Princess of Wales, has been on display at Coventry Transport Museum since 2022. It was owned by Princess Diana until 1981 and is thought to have been a gift from the then Prince of Wales. Diana visited the city herself in 1985 when she toured Remploy's factory on Torrington Avenue. A free garden party at Coombe Country Park will take place around the formal gardens on May the 7th with Victorian ribbon games, street food, a fun fair and more. Outlook News And uh, that concludes the local news for this week. All rather depressing, I'm afraid, with the uh, weather forecast for the weekend, but hopefully we'll all make the best of it. Now, uh, you, the usual announcement, you know what that is, lighting up at uh, 5.33 in the morning and disappearing in the evening at 8.35. Uh, just a little reminder, as we've had a bank holiday, and we're about to have another bank holiday, uh, postal services have been slightly disrupted, so we've got less wallets back than usual. So uh, to ensure you get the uh, uh, programme next week, which is the lot before we have the break, because of the uh, uh, no programme uh, but to ensure you get it please get your wallets back in the post as quickly as you can uh, we were a bit thin this week but uh, hopefully they'll all come bundling through the letterbox during the next few days so now uh, welcome to Joe who's here in uh, Hugh, Hugh and you seem to be doing a double act now all turn at weeks yes I just pop up occasionally <laughs> where Hugh is not available so it's me again everybody hello nice to be here hello so, so what's happening well, I have very little to say today. Um, Hugh is apologetic about not being able to say hello to you this week. He is busy interviewing, uh, along with Rosie and Tony, so Good. they've been hard at it for a day and a half. Um, That's encouraging, there have been that many applicants. Well, yes, yes. we've, we've yes. had a good spread of people, so we're optimistic about that, so that's good. We'll let you know when we can. Yep. Um, so, from the news point of view at the centre... Um, it would be, first of all, for me to say thank you very much to everybody for the very successful Earlsdon Festival weekend that we've just had. Uh, so the first of the several bank holidays was Monday the 1st, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, that's free. Uh, I have to confess I'm quite enjoying May this year with yes. all the bank holidays available. <laughs> <laughs> So Monday the 1st of May we have the Elston Festival and as you know we have the forecourt shop sale and the plant sale and they both did extremely well. Good. So our massive thanks to June and all of her helpers in the shop. Uh, they raised £977 Did they be well in one oh, day. Very yes. good for them. Fantastic, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And in fact, somebody was telling me there were so many people coming in and out of that little shop. She did wonder at one point whether people were going in, coming out the back and going round again. <laughs> um, and the plant sale, the allotment and gardening group, Jenny and Mark and the team, 
have also done extremely well, plant sales. Excellent. And they always look brilliant, their plants. They're always very healthy. And they raised about £750. Did mm-hmm. they? So that's done a well, very, very well. successful day Honestly. out of the poor yes. wasn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, that's good news for everybody. And um, that follows to say the next bank holiday Monday, which is this coming Monday, the 8th. Yep. Yep. The centre is closed, of, of course. course. Yes. So just a little reminder to everybody, do not get ready for the minibus on Monday morning. It will not be coming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we will be open on the, what would that be, the 15th? Uh, following, uh, obviously we're open on the Tuesday yes, and the rest oh, of the yeah, week, yeah. but yes. after that we've got yeah. another bank holiday, but not till the end of May. Last, yeah. last, last Monday. Last Monday in May, that's yeah. right, yeah. We'll be closed we'll that be day closed as well. Again, yes. But we're open as usual in between. Yes, good. Um, thinking about the new bus, I haven't driven it, looks it yet. It looks very smart. It's yes. very smart now, Doesn't with it, all yes. its, uh, its sign writing having yes. been done. Mm. And it's bigger, so it takes more people. To it is a bit bigger. It's too. in very good nick. Good access as well. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Uh, steps and the rear uh, hoist as well. So I'm hoping everybody's enjoying using the new bus, and getting mm. on and off with a bit more ease and comfort than with the Ford. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, yeah, I haven't driven it yet. I want to have a go now because it does feel. They're going to let you loosen as well, they. I'm going <laughs> to go out there and have a go. I think round the car park at least. Good. Good. Um, so that's a good job, doesn't it? We've got yes. two buses that we're using, both of which are fully adapted. Yep. And fully sign written, and we will be um, selling the Ford as soon as we're able to. I think. That's mm-hmm. going to uh, yeah. give us some yeah. funds to look ahead to replacements yes. and costs. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's a big project we've managed to move forward with, which is very gratifying. Yes, absolutely, yes. And the only other thing that I know Hugh wanted me to mention to everybody, um, we are probably going to have another theatre trip in June. Uh, It won't be the Monday that week. It'll probably be Wednesday the 19th of June, I think that would be. Sounds about about Uh, right, but we can confirm that later on. We can give you a bit more specifics later. It'll either be the Tuesday or the Wednesday that week. I think that's the 18th or 19th of June. Um, But we haven't gone for tickets or anything yet. So we'd like to know if anyone's interested in coming. Going to where to see what? That's the important bit. That's very important, (laughs) isn't it? So, again, it'll be the Criterion Theatre, just around the corner. And we usually have fish and chips up at beforehand. Um, And the performance is going to be Sweeney Todd. Ah, You should have sausages and chips in that case, if you've seen Sweeney Todd. Ah, I see. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to do the high-risk game, yes. Yes, Yes. get in the mood beforehand. So Mm. it is the musical version, I believe so, yes. Sweeney Todd musical, I believe. Um, I don't know any more than that, but uh, Hugh said it will cost a little bit more because it's a musical, the costs yes. are higher to put it right. on, but it won't be a fortune. Right. And we will fill in the gaps and let you know the details. Um, but you'd like to know people who are interested in going? Yeah, it's always helpful to get an yeah. early list. Yeah, book the week, make a note of it yes. that week. Yes, <laughs> so uh, let somebody in reception here know if you'd like to come along to that next trip and keep that week free, or that Tuesday and Wednesday free anyway. Excellent. And I think, actually, that's all the news I have to say today. That's fine. That, that means that things are going swimmingly, then, doesn't well, it? Well, I'd like to think <laughs> that's the case, yes. Yes. <laughs> looking forward to the afternoon tea. Oh, yes. Which, yes, we'll be able to yes. tell them people all about that. Yes. Mm. Time, won't we? Uh, mm. Coronation afternoon tea. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, uh, are we making a coronation uh, omelette plan or anything else? Quiche. Quiche. I, I see that Mr. Reese Mogg says it's absolutely disgusting because it's got broad beans in it, which are revolting, according to him. Oh, really? It's broad beans and spinach, it's the basis of it. And it's, the spinach, was it not? 
something else in it. Egg? Green. Is that? Yes. Yeah, oh, so yes. Uh, herb. Yeah. Herb. Yeah. Herb. yeah, sounds yeah. delicious to me. But sounds delicious to me. Very much, very much uh, uh, veggie. Yes. Um, yeah. uh, but I think Mr. Eastmore doesn't like broad beans. <laughs> well, <laughs> which well, I they, love. They can be an acquired taste, they but I like yes. love I them, and I love the pods. They're all firm yes. inside. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure they're growing them on the allotment as we speak. Oh, but um, yes. yes, well, it'll be an afternoon tea, so there'll be all sorts of cakes and scones and delights lovely. and that mm. sort of thing. So hopefully that will be a lovely time on Friday and we'll let mm. you know how that goes. Excellent. Fine. Thank you, Joe. Thank you very much. And next, as usual, we welcome Sarah with her sports report for this week. Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, listeners, and welcome to sport. No, don't turn over. Anyway, just to get going. Right, I'm going to start off this week with the ovoid shaped ball. Because Coventry Rugby Club played their final match of the season against Bedford Blues. And what a superb season it has been to Coventry for Coventry, securing their highest ever finish in the championship. And quite rightly and fittingly, they rounded it off with a victory 43 points to 19. So well done, Coven. Push for one of the top two places next time and promotion. Now, what a lot of hype there was going into the football match, Coventry City, on Saturday. You see, it's getting quite tight. Going into the match, we were in fifth place, which put us into the playoffs. Luton and Middlesbrough have already secured their places in the playoffs. But basically, there's about... Well, going into Saturday's match... There were about seven teams playing for their final two places. Anyway, our boys certainly did their bit in front of an over 30,000 crowd with a 2-0 victory over our near near neighbours and former landlords, Birmingham City. Great to see Josh Eccles get on the score sheet for his first ever goal for the city. And then that man who spells his name with a G, Victor Jokerez, scored a penalty which made up for the one he missed previously. But hey-ho. Anyway, going in now to the final match of the season... We are still actually in fifth, the fifth playoff spot. But there are a total of five teams playing for those last two promotions places. Although two of them will cancel each other out. It could only be Blackburn or Millwall because they're playing each other. But we've also got to factor in Sunderland and West Brom. So I just know I shall be in tears come five o'clock on Monday. Hopefully tears of joy 
though I fear it may be tears of frustration and upset. Oh, well, it's not as if anyone's died, although it sure as heck will feel like it. Anyway, whatever you say about our final place, it has been a really good season for Coventry. When you think that at the beginning of the season, well, certainly about a month into the season, we were at the bottom of the division, we weren't able to play our home matches because the pitch had been churned up by the Rugby Sevens games during the Commonwealth Games. And we rented the pitch, well, we still rent the pitch and the ground, but off a rugby club. And we had not unsupportive, but uninterested owners. They kind of came into it, size who did, thinking that they could buy us, get us into the premiere, and then sell us off for a record amount. And now look where we are. We have a new owner with Doug King, who by all means sounds a really nice, really interested man. We have just signed a five-year grand deal with the new owner of the grand, Mike Ashton. And it's single use only, so during those five years we won't share it with another rugby club or football club. So it would be no use, for example, wasps getting promoted and thinking that they could come back. And we are in a place for the playoffs. So what a change round it has been. And I'm sorry, Guy, but yes... I do think that our manager, Mark Robbins, is the man for the job. Now, going down into the non-league clubs, sadly, Leamington, after their 5-1 drubbing by Fylde last week, were relegated from the, Southern, from the Northern Premier. But they managed a victory against Southport in their final match at that level, winning two goals to one. Now, you may remember that I told you last week how Nanit and Borough were going to play in the semi-finals for promotion from the Southern League. But the match was away to Leighton. But oh, home away, who cares? They won two goals to one. And they are now actually, as I'm recording this, playing their final match against Russell Olympic at the FCS Stadium. No, I don't know where that is either. And so I'm hoping to be able to put in a postscript at the end of this session just to say that hopefully Nuneaton have won promotion, but I won't count my chickens. Now, I also told you that Rugby Town were in the playoffs as well for, for promotion from their league, along with Coventry Sphinx, who'd already got automatic promotion. 
But I learned midweek that the way the pyramid structure works in the non-league is that with there being far more teams in the lower divisions than in the higher divisions, somebody, I know not who, looks across all of the teams who are in second place in a level and selects, in rugby's case, three for automatic promotion to the next league. And rugby got the third spot. So well done, rugby. You'll still be playing Coventry Sphinx next year, but in your one tier higher. And now on to other sports. Bit of a hodgepodge this week. And I will bring you the result of the Nuneaton game at the end. Promise. Now, congratulations to England rugby team, the women's rugby team, of course, who retained the Grand Slam after a win against France, 38 points to 33. Now, I think one of the most standout facts of this match for me was the fact that it was played in front of a record crowd of over 58,000, 10,000 more than actually watched the World Cup final. Just think what we could have done if that World Cup comes to England. Oh, well, here's hoping. Now, while we're on the ovoid ball, but we're changing code this time, we're going back to Rugby League. Big congratulations to England men who beat France 64 points to nil, which included 11 tries. However, not to be outrun, Congratulations of a bigger variety to England Women's Rugby League, who also beat France 64 points to nil, but in a game which included 12 tries. Oh dear France, perhaps your cock is not so sportif. Perhaps it would be better done over. I fancy that anyway. Now, just to finish, the tennis circuit has really moved into Europe now before the summer season, which is very much Europe-based. And we're currently in the relatively early stages of the Madrid Open. But congratulations to Cameron Norrie, who's made it into the final 32 so far. But watch this space. And then just to put things into context, the French Open begins at the end of May and runs until the middle of June. Then all the players have to flick across the channel and we have Queens for the men and Edgebaston and Eastbourne for the women before big drum roll again. Wimbledon starts on the 3rd of July and finishes on the 16th of July. And now for that result that I said I would bring you. Well, I'm afraid no drum roll needed because at full time it was nil-nil 
After 30 minutes extra time, it was nil-nil, so it went to penalties. And I'm afraid Nuneaton lost. Oh, well, never mind, it's another season, and they do say things come in three, so hopefully Sphinx have gone up, Rugby Town have gone up, and, well, there's a small matter of the Sky Blues to go up. Come on, City! And that was your sport. Oh, and by the way, the FCS Stadium was the initials on Facebook for Nuneaton Borough Stadium. Before I get loads of letters to post back, hey-ho, bye! Thanks, Sarah, for that report. Uh, and uh, as usual, we're going to move on to your spot in the show. That's Dave with your post bag. This is Postbank. Join in the discussion. Hello and welcome to your Postbag. Last week I put Postbag together before I left to go on holiday with Graham. Going out with Graham is an adventure. We went on trains to Southport, Chester and Liverpool culminating with a fantastic 50th birthday party for Graham in Bronborough, in the Wirral, in the company of his musical friends. We walked over 54 miles along the canal to Wigan, Pier, the Mersey, etc. Talking of walking, here's Julia with the latest report on the walking exploits of her brother-in-law. Julia's report is entitled... Ian and the Grand Union. Ian is married to my sister Donna. Every day he goes for a long walk, but he always comes back home. He's walking all the way from Birmingham to London along the Grand Union Canal. Well, he's not exactly in the canal, but that would be silly and a bit wet. No, he's walking beside the canal trying to keep to the towpath. But he's not in a hurry. He's with a friend and they are aiming to walk about 8 miles per day. He's 67 now and hopes to reach London before his 70th birthday. My friend John says there are lots of good pubs beside the canal, so that might slow them down a bit. But Ian is not an old drunkard like my friend John, so he'll probably be alright. I might do a long walk one day. I will practice by walking round the garden. Maybe I'll buy a bottle of gin and serenade the neighbours. That will make the rain come down. I really admire my brother-in-law, Ian. He's a lovely man, and I think King Charles III should present him with a gold medal and a bottle of whisky. Julia. Thank you, Julia. Carol Bloxham goes for walks with her guide dog. Here she is to reply to Bob Syme by telling him and yourself about her new guide dog. Hello Dave and everybody. It's Carol Bloxham. To answer Bob Syme's, yes Bob, I went for a new dog on the 27th of February. We are still in training because we're doing a completely brand new system. He is big, he is black, he's got a curly coat down by his tail and his name is Ken and but uh, I do remember Jackson 
I remember you telling me about um, you going down a manhole and the dog stood looking up at you, down at you as much to say what you're doing down there. So over time, we have had fun with our dogs, haven't we? Um, I hope to be back in the centre permanently in the not-too-distant future. So take care, everybody, and it's nice hearing all your messages. Thanks, Dave. Bye, everybody. Carol and Ken. Thank you so much, Carol. Nice to hear from you again. Please tell us about your guide dog or your doggy stories. From dogs to cats, Graham and I saw the civil defence message on our smartphones while we were in a cat cafe in Liverpool. The screen on my phone was covered by the civil defence test alert. To switch it off, I had to click onto the little cross at the bottom on the right hand side. I was then asked a question, do you want to receive any more of these tests, yes or no? I could see to switch off the message that was covering the screen, but how did you get on? If you couldn't see it perhaps, let us know. And going back to the cat cafe, uh, they charge you by the minute plus the cost of food, which means you're clock watching while waiting to be served. Well, it, it did cost us £34 for two paninis. So there you are. Uh, so thanks to Graham Whale for alerting us to the government's civil defence test recently. This week he talks about dictionaries. Well, I wouldn't do without my dictionary. Um, I have an Oxford dictionary, but it is called the Little Oxford Dictionary. That is what it was called in the 1950s when this was published. It's in Braille. It's about uh, 12 volumes, I think, something like that. I haven't counted them recently. <laughs> but it's so dated. I would say at least a third of the, or at least a half of the words that I go to look, it up, look up in it aren't there. So I do, need, I do need a new dictionary myself, to be honest, but I think the newer Braille dictionaries are about 16 volumes, and I haven't got the space to store them. So I'll struggle on with the one I've already got. Regarding uh, Dave Monk's uh, quiz, well, I think it's Billy Bunter of Greyfriars School, the book. I can't remember the author's name. And I remember the television production in the 1950s. I believe the main character, Billy Bunter, was played by somebody who came from this area. I also believe, I've only found this out recently, that um, one of the characters of the uh, famous five, or whatever they call themselves, uh, was a very young Michael Crawford. Uh, I never realised that until somebody told me. Um, there was another uh, well-known actor in it as well, which uh, has escaped my, my memory. But yeah, Billy Bunter of Greyfriars School. Thank you, Graham. Are there any words in the extended dictionary that you need, though? Uh, thank you for entering my quiz. I gave two quotes from two books of my childhood, and maybe yours. One was... The achefulness is terrific, my esteemed bunter, said Hui Ram Ranjit Singh. Which was, as you so rightly said, from Billy Bunter books by Frank Richards. He was played by Gerald Campion on television. The other quote I can remember is, Fishhooks, venables, why do all these hoo-has have to happen to us? 
That was from Jennings by Anthony Bookeridge. His best school friend was Derbyshire and his other friend was Venables. Among my nicknames at school was things like monkey nuts. Here's Edwina to talk about the benefits of eating nuts. Hi everybody. Once again I'm being a nutcase. <laughs> I'm laughing. But I do love nuts. And the best nuts to eat are almonds, Brazil, pecan and hazelnuts. These are the chosen best nuts to eat. The best way to help your heart and possibly digestive is to have just a handful of nuts in the morning. It really is good for your body. I always do this every day. The other thing is that some people will find eating nuts very hard and difficult. In that case you can put them in water and soak them overnight. They will be easier to eat and digest then. Take care. Keep smiling. Bye. And finally, Graham has some information about the return of the Coventry Reader Service for the Visually Impaired. Well, I can announce now that the Reader Service is up and running. Um, it's been up and running for about a month actually, but uh, we've, not been in, we've not been in a position to advertise because it's been a question of um, matching readers up with people who need readers who are already on the books. I mean, a lot of the readers have left during the COVID uh, crisis and uh, it's been like starting again really. But I think uh, we've sorted things out now, so um, if anybody would like somebody to read to them, uh, newspapers, literature, uh, correspondence, um, then get in touch and um, I'm sure you can be fitted in as soon as somebody comes available to read to you. And uh, if you want to, a reader, ring Linda Brody on 02476, which you won't need if you're in Coventry, 417741. That's 764741. And as I speak to Linda Brody, and uh, she'll put you on the list. Thank you. Thanks, Graham. To get on the list for the reader service for the visually impaired, ring Linda Brody on 764171741. Thank you for your messages this week. Tell us how you celebrated King Charles III's coronation. And if you have a message for him, I'll be pleased to pass him on. Having met him once, he might even remember me from the garden party. Please let's hear from you next time. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag.
So that's your postbag for this week from Dave. The Blitz on Coventry in the war devastated much of the city and uh, nowhere less so than the Cathedral, St Michael and All Saints, uh, the ruins of which are the subject of Margaret's talk this week on the significant buildings of Coventry. St Michael and All Saints. The first mention of a church here was a chapel dedicated to St Michael. It was built by Ranulf Gurnan, Earl of Chester and given to the monks of Coventry Priory in 1135. The Landley Cartillery in the early 1200s refers to it as St Michael in the Bailey. This of course refers to the fact it was sited within the Bailey of the Earl's Castle. Foundations have been found opposite St Mary's Hall and the south porch once contained some mouldings from this period. East of the south porch, massive foundations were uncovered in the past, probably a curtain wall edging along the castle's northern ditch, which ran through the centre of the ruins. <clears throat> by the 13th century, the Norman chapel had been replaced by a larger early English church, in the decorated style. In 1248, the bishop got the prior to provide monks, priests and ministers to serve in the chapels attached to this church, including the chapel on the mount and the chapel of the cross. Practically nothing survives of this smaller 13th century church except for a decorated doorway in the south porch. The building we see today dates mainly from the 14th century. In 1324, Meryton's Chantry was founded and others soon followed. All had priests who sang daily mass for the souls of the donors. Later in 1373, the church's tower was commenced. It is said that it took 22 years to build with construction ending in 1394. The spire itself wasn't added until 1432. Coventry merchants and brothers, William and Adam Bottiner, are said to have expended £100 annually building it. The spire was paid for by their sisters, Anne and Mary. The tower, with its octagon and spire, is the third tallest in England and was declared a masterpiece by Sir Christopher Wren. What makes it unique, unlike its rivals Salisbury and Norwich, is that it is the highest tower spire in the land, built from the ground up and not springing from the centre of the church. The tower is 130 feet, 8.5 inches high, and is heavily decorated being adorned with 42 kings, saints, confessors and benefactors. The spire is around 126 feet high and 17 inches thick at the base and leans by 4.5 degrees. The tower, octagon and spire as a whole measured 295 feet 9.5 inches but after the restoration of 1880 it was shortened slightly, making it 294 feet 
and almost bringing it into line with the church, which measures 293 feet 9 inches. The choir and body of the church were erected around the same time as the tower, again paid for by Anne and Mary Botster. In 1451, Henry VI heard Mass here. In 1617, James I visited, and in 1687, James II touched 200 people here for the king's evil. In 1730, a massive dragon weather vane was placed at the top of the spire, but its weight caused damage. A new weathercock and globe of copper, wearing 20 pounds, replaced it and still graced the spire today. The interior was renovated in 1849 and another restoration took place between 1885 and 1900, which cost nearly £40,000 reaching all parts. The Collegiate Church of St Michael was made a cathedral in 1918. On the night of the 14th of November 1940, the cathedral was destroyed by incendiary bombs. The day after, its stonemason, Jock Forbes, picked up two burned roof timbers, wired them together into the form of a cross and stood them in the rubble by the altar. When the church was semi-cleared, it was placed on a new altar with the words, Father Forgive, carved behind. This and the cross of nails became symbols of the cathedral's International Ministry of Forgiveness and Reconciliation. A recent million-pound restoration scheme to stabilise the crumbling ruin was funded mainly by the World Monuments Fund after the building was listed as threatened in 2012. The good work has been put under threat recently by using the building for events such as a house music gig that vibrated the building for nine hours. The tower's best-known resident, a rare peregrine falcon, left for a week. Large numbers of graves lie below the floor. David McGrory says that his own three times great-granddad and grandmother lie in the chancel because he was a church warden in the 18th century. The cathedral's website states, Today the ruins of the old cathedral are preserved as a memorial and sacred space for the city. The ruins of the old cathedral are beautifully linked to the new St Michael's Cathedral, which is already surprisingly over 60 years old uh, and is the subject of Margaret's talk next week. Last week, Bill started the history and evolution of snooker which actually made me think uh, surprisingly, oh not surprisingly maybe, that we hear very little about billiards nowadays. However, that's another subject. Uh, Bill is now back with the conclusion of the story of snooker as written by Brendan Cooper. In the very heart of the decade, 1985 World Championship Final came something more than snooker's greatest moment. To this day it remains a national TV treasure an endlessly repeated holiday treat to watch nostalgically with a tray of chocolates and a pint of ale. More than 18 million people stayed up after midnight to watch the match 
between the supposedly invincible Davies and the town-goggled underdog, Miss Taylor, go to the very final ball. Late-night tension was something like from a dream. In immortal footage, a deathly pale Davis missed a tricky cut before Taylor sank the black and held his cue aloft, shaking it in both hands like some triumphant samurai or swashbuckling hero from ancient times. For once, the script had been ignored. It was not the unbeatable machine, but the affable everyman who had come out on top. You might say it gave everyone a sense of hope. People often cite the 1980s as snooker's peak. Into the 21st century, the game has remained immensely popular. Last year's World Championship final, where Ronnie O'Sullivan made history, equaling Stephen Hendry's record of seven world titles, was watched by 4.5 million fans on the BBC. This made it the most popular programme on British TV, hitting both Coronation Street and EastEnders. And the international reach of snooker continues to boom. New audiences grow all over the globe, from Europe to the Middle East to Southeast Asia. In China, where the game has developed a massive following, viewing figures for snooker regularly exceed 100 million. It might come as a surprise to many people that snooker has been listed as one of the top ten sports in terms of worldwide TV ranking. Snooker, in short, is huge. Snooker is big news. It has also had to fight its demons. It might be the quintessential game of colour and light, but as I explore in deep pockets, my book on this most magical of games, Surrounding Dark, is never far away. In snooker, being out of shape is no barrier to success. In theory, players can booze and binge and still win. Self-destructive behaviour has long been part of snooker history. Many players, including some of the greatest, have succumbed to the temptation of drink and drugs. It is a uniquely brutal game of the mind. No one in sport is quite as helpless as the snooker player stuck in his chair, able to do nothing but watch. A snooker player is an isolated figure, detached from the rest of the world, and it can be a lonely life. The game's individual nature means no one else is there to help. A string of professionals, over the years, have battled with fragile mental health. Money can be hard to come by. Snooker is all or nothing. Ambitious youngsters have no choice to sacrifice their lives to it from a very early age. A talented rugby player or cricketer will often head to university before turning pro. For snooker players, this is not an option. At the foot of the rankings, prize money is thin on the ground. It's a tough road, and some struggle to make ends meet. Darkest of all is the spectre of match fixing. 
Over the years, this has been the gravest threat to Snooker's soul. The most notorious case was Stephen Lee, who in 2012 was banned for 12 years for a string of fixing offences. Authorities clamped down with a no-tolerance policy. In December 2022, though, it reared its head again. Ten Chinese players were abruptly suspended on betting-related charges. As the 2023 World Championships approach, this month, the fate remains undecided. One thing is for sure. Whatever the outcome, Snooker will survive. The beauty of the game will outlast any challenge. Snooker possesses its own unique poetry. The table itself has a kind of mathematical grace. Its canvas of colour is perfect, a masterpiece of red, yellow, green, brown, blue, pink and black on a peaceful bath of green. For more than half a century it has been beamed into people's homes, offering fans an intoxicating mixture of drama and relaxation. The ancient Romans Shrines, the Penates, odds of the household and hearth, and snooker is just such a spirit, bathing the living rooms of the world in its sheltering green light. Long may it flourish. I really do enjoy watching the professionals playing. I'm constantly amazed at their skills in potting, and even more so in the accurate placing of the cue ball ready for the next shot. Now, coal was once our main source of energy and heat for many and many a year, but all that has changed now with gas, wind power and nuclear. Of course, it was never a clean fuel, uh, and this week its sale as a household fuel is being banned. And so next, Sheila says farewell to little black lumps that made Britain great. There is unlikely to be much in the way of ceremony, but the end of April 2023, a hugely significant moment in our national story occurred. A lorry delivered the very last sack of traditional house coal to a British home. From May 1st, it was illegal to sell the oldest, dirtiest energy source to households. This won't quite mean the end of real home fires, as it will still be legal to sell anthracite, the least polluting and highest grade of coal, along with smokeless fuels manufactured from coal. But in many ways, that last coal delivery was the final chapter in the story of an industry that has been central to British history. Writer George Orwell said that our, our civilization was founded on coal. Coal fueled the Industrial Revolution, underpinned the British Empire and powered the Royal Navy. It will also forever be associated with miners and their communities who endured the dangers and appalling nature of the job. Disasters such as Aberfan, as well as Margaret Thatcher's fight against Arthur Scargill's striking miners in the 1980s, are seared into our collective memories. Now King Cole no longer reigns supreme. Recently, none of the electricity produced in this country derived from coal and the last coal-fired power station is due to be closed next year. The fuel that has kept Britain warm since at least the second century, according to the analysis of hearths of Roman villas in Northumberland, has quietly been all but removed from our national life. 
uh, there is no other example in history of a fuel experiencing such a rapid and complete demise. However, no one should mourn its passing too much. It isn't just the carbon emissions, which for coal-burning power stations are twice as high kilowatt-hour for kilowatt-hour as for gas-fired ones. Coal was always a filthy fuel, spewing out clouds of airborne soot and sulphur dioxide. The switch from coal burning to gas, oil and electric heating in British homes has led to sulphur dioxide levels in the air falling by 98% since 1970 and fewer soot particles, no more than 2.5 micrometres in diameter, by more than three quarters. While households today worry about the environmental damage committed by cars and wood-burning stoves, the air was filthier back in the 1950s, before air pollution records were kept, when London smogs blotted out almost all light. The worst, in 1952, cost at least 4,000 lives. With less coal burning, blackened buildings have been allowed to gleam again, and we no longer have Norway complaining that acid rain blown on the wind from Britain is killing its fir trees. By the 1960s, oil followed by natural gas had become the mainstay of home heating, but still a pall of smoke hung over the older houses in Canterbury, and I still associate visits to grandparents in Nottinghamshire mining town with an acrid smell that pervaded the countryside for miles. Whenever we left, we would reach the A1 and realise that the grass had suddenly become green again, rather than having a rim of black powder. Yet for all the pollution, we should be thankful for coal. Whatever people say now, it transformed our lives immeasurably over the past couple of centuries. Without it, industrialisation would have rapidly absorbed as Britain ran out of water power for its mills and charcoal for its iron production. While coal picked up from the foreshore in County Durham had been shipped to London since medieval times, it was the greedy furnaces of the industrial north in the late 18th century that really sparked off the industry. At that time, five-sixths of the world's coal was mined and used in Britain. At the industry's peak in 1913, there were 3,024 deep mines in operation, which produced 292 million tonnes of coal and employed 1.1 million miners. It wasn't just providing heat and making steel. The streets and homes of Victorian Britain were illuminated by town gas produced from coal. Trains, ships and barges were almost all coal-powered until well into the 20th century. The last mainline steam train service ran until 1968. Throughout the 20th century, coal was the mainstay of electricity generation, and as late as 2012, it still provided nearly half of our electricity. It's hard to explain to those under the age of 40 what a central role coal once played in national political life. The three-day week of 1973-74 came about because, at that time, whoever controlled the coal controlled the UK economy. And as we found out, it wasn't Prime Minister Edward Heath. In 1974, there were still a quarter of a million miners employed in Britain. A decade later, it was down to 130,000. When Arthur Scargill made his fateful decision to take on a much better prepared Conservative government, led by Mrs Thatcher. The stockpiling of coal at power stations, initiated by Nigel Lawson, who died recently, helped to keep the lights on throughout the year's long strike. 
and with gas flowing into the North Sea, coal was suddenly in retreat. Climate change forced former supporters of the industry into a rapid about turn to the point that some now see coal mining as a crime against humanity rather than the beating heart of the working class. Our last deep coal mine at Kellingley in North Yorkshire produced its final wagonful in December 2015. There are still a few free miners in the Forest of Dean scratching a living from digging coal from the ground but they are never going to put the lights out. By 2021, coal was being used to produce just 2% of our power, and most of that was from imported stocks. While we should be pleased that Britain no longer runs on filthy coal, there is no reason to stamp the industry into the ground and dance on its grave. A proposed coal mine at Whitehaven, Cumbria, which was granted the go-ahead by the government in December, was bitterly opposed by climate change protesters, in spite of the fact it will not be producing coal for power stations or open fires only coking coal for steel making. At present, coal is the only commercially proven means we have for producing steel. Our heritage railways too have been warning that they risk of running out of coal as so little is now produced in Britain and that their other main source, Russia, has been cut off. Yet quantities of coal involved in keeping heritage trains running at 25 miles an hour are tiny and of negligible importance to carbon emissions, so why put a tourist industry at risk? Coal mining precipitated the bang of the Industrial Revolution, but is going out with a whimper. We should at least recognise Old King Coal and its contribution to our national story and to the transformation of living standards around the world. To catch a whiff of coal on the platform of a heritage railway is to be reminded of the singular substance that made Britain. So I say also farewell to coal and its comforting glow. It's not long since Coventry Station had a major refit and improvement, and with that also changes which might well affect those with sight problems. Uh, so Sarah has been there to give us this guided tour. Well, hello, it's Sarah here. No, not with sport, so don't go rushing to your fast-forward button. Lol. Um, but about a year ago, soon after it had opened, I visited Coventry Railway Station to basically have a look round and give you, give us listeners a bit of an indication on the access issues. So, one broken leg later and now having dispensed with my walking stick, yay! Um, I thought it was about time I went back. Now the first thing to say is, it is very much two stations attached into one. I'm standing with my back towards the city centre and the building on the right is the new build and the building on the left is the old traditional building and they both look, sound and feel very different. The new building is quite dark, it's very cold or it was when I went anyway and it's also quiet because people just aren't using it. But having said that it's very dark, there are also shafts of sunlight which come through and they can be quite dazzling. But fortunately, there is a white tactile strip that runs the length of it. And if you follow that, it will take you through to, well, 
basically you have to go outside from the new building across a space probably about 80 metres but it's reasonably well it's reasonably clear and it's absolutely flat to, into the old building which by contrast is warm is light and is quite bustling and busy now calling it the old building it has been refurbed but the ticket office is where the ticket office has been traditionally for quite a few years and the assisted ticket section is when you go in it's to your left and a little bit forward um, and there's a very nice Marks and Spencer's food hall just to your left as you go through the ticket barriers. The old building is also the nearest to the assistance. So if you are looking for assistance, it's probably best to use the old building. Now, having said there are two stations, just to confuse things, there are four doors, four entrances to this one building. Well, five actually. There is the main entrance from the Central Six car park, which takes you straight in to this tunnel-like construct of the new building. And there is the exit entrance at the end of that one. Then there are the traditional as where, as always where, entrances to the old station which you can go in still either at the long side or the short end but there is also a first floor entrance because of where Warwick Road is it's called the Warwick Road Railway Bridge entrance and it is just that it takes you out immediately onto the bridge level inside the station. So may be useful if you're travelling, for instance, anywhere other than from Platform 1, which is mostly London Euston. So if you're going to Birmingham or Leamington, etc., etc. Now the buses mostly stop at what is called the railway interchange certainly the number 11 does and I believe the X17 and the 585 and others may stop there perhaps people can help me out here and send them to post bag not send the buses but send the numbers obviously but the number 9 and the 12 don't go into the interchange they stop up on top adjacent to the railway bridge entrance I believe the taxis will still drop you by the old traditional building but the one thing I will say is whenever I visited there particularly if I show my white cane the staff could not be more helpful and are very willing to help out 
The only thing I was told was if you go through the new entrance and want assistance, while they can radio down to the assistance people, they have rarely got enough staff on duty to actually guide you down to the assistance. So, come on guys, what's stopping you? We have holidays coming up, better weather, hopefully. And I hope I have now given you a bit of an insight into the Coventry Station. I don't know if Dave and Graham took the train from Coventry Station or drove to Nottingham to explore the caves. Whatever, here's their report on that interesting visit. Nottingham has some fascinating surprises above and below ground, as I was to discover when Graham took me to the city, first by car and then on one of the lovely trams from the Park and Ride. We've arrived at Park and Ride Nottingham. We're about to get on the tram to go into the city centre. More than 800 caves are now known to exist beneath the streets of Nottingham. Yeah, Nottingham Caves is also mentioned in the um, guidebook, which is an uh, alternative places you can go to and set up Orton Towers, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right, yeah. Graham and I had been once before when Sheila was in a respite in a home, recovering from a stroke. That time we had a guide to take us round. This time the guide was on Graham's phone. We had to mind our heads and watch our feet as we walk through the tunnels. It's not disabled friendly. We were greeted by Sam at the start of our tour. Welcome to the City of Caves. You are um, going into um, um, a monument, a historical monument that has been here. Um, well, the caves date back to as early as 900 AD, but you're going to go into small um, system caves that exist here beneath the Broadmoor Shopping Centre. Um, that was built here in 1968, but the, uh, the caves have been here since as early as 900 AD. We know that our caves date back to around 1290. Um, as you walk around the caves, your audio guide will tell you what the caves are used for and to give you more of an idea as their use over history. Yeah. But to name a few, public house sellers. You've yeah. also got um, you've also got these caves being used as their aid shelters as well yeah. and the like. Out in one of the caves. That's they right. To sabotage looms. That's that. right. On your audio guide, there will be a, a bit of a discussion about yes. how the Horseshoe Cave and yes. many other public house sellers in Nottingham were used as uh, as hideout spaces for Luddites. Yes. If you were to head down into the Horseshoe Cave, you'll see a ceil- in the ceiling you'll see a little hole that a stone would have been dropped down, and that would have been an alarm system by perhaps a Luddite's child. And when they dropped the stone, that would have that would have alarmed people. If anyone was down there plotting their revenge against those machines that were yeah. taking away their jobs, the room, yeah. they yeah. would have scarfed. The last time we came here, we had to wear hard hats, didn't we? Yeah. Where do you think we are now? Graham? We're inside the artillery where they made the uh, other goods, didn't they? Okay, we're going to the western caves. They're still being explored and excavated by a team of dedicated volunteers. 
By February 1941, there were 86 caves in Nottingham available as public airway shelters. And here we are in a big airway shelter now. And here's an ARP warden's hat. And there's a gas mask here for a baby. And one, however, one that resembles Mickey Mouse. And then we saw some government information posters. One, advertising the benefits of eating carrots, thought to improve the eyesight, though not as much as they wanted the Germans to believe, because they didn't want them to know why they were shooting down their planes in the dark and through clouds. A Dr. Carrot sign, yeah. the children's best friend. Because then the war, uh, they um, tried to fool the Germans by saying the carrots made your eyes see best because they didn't want to find out about radar. From Potato Pete said, I make a good soup. And there's the Dig for Victory sign as well. We then climbed a lot of steps to reach the surface. I would advise taking a sighted guide with you and watching your feet. And the surface can be slippy when wet and it's also uneven. And here we are in the sunshine, Graham. That was fascinating, wasn't it? The city yeah. of caves. Yeah. And we're by Nottingham Castle, and there's the statue of Robin Hood, looking a bit elfish. Here we are. The end of the castle is Yoldi Trip to Jerusalem, 1189 A.D., the oldest inn in England. The trip to Jerusalem Inn was christened when Richard the Lionheart and his men congregated here before going to the Crusades. Like the caves, the inn was carved out of the sandstone. Now in the glass case in the rock lounge where we had our meal was the cursed galleon that once hung above Sheila and myself at a table while we were having a meal. It was thick with dust but woe betide anyone who cleans it. Two or three cleaners dusted it and died shortly afterwards. Now I understand there's ghosts there. Yeah, so are you aware of ghosts there? Um, I'm not a massive believer. Bad things fall off the shelf at uh, work for no explained reason, yeah. That test goes, okay. <laughs> Thank you. And we're about to leave Nottingham City Centre to go on the tram back to the park and ride. We've stopped off on the way from Nottingham to the village of Gotham, which is spelt Gotham. Does that name ring a bell if you're a superhero fan? We'll find out. We're in the village shop of Gotham that's actually spelt Gotham. You've just bought some penguins. Yeah, penguin was the arch enemy of, the, of Batman. Well, there's a wonderful sign here. It's ribbons round the top of a pole, and these images of the various legends of the village of Gotham, spelt Gotham. So, so what can you see on the sculpture, Graham? And the sculpture like a spiral, and they got on it um, at the top there's Robin from Bomb, from, and then Batman climbing up. There is a connection with Batman to the village of Gotham, that's spelt Gotham. Uh, you see, um, 
King John and his soldiers wanted to stay here, you see. But the villagers thought that was going to be really expensive, having to feed all the troops and having to spend money on improving the king's highway as well. So they all pretended to be mad because it was thought that madness was contagious. So they decided they'd better not stop here. Washington Irving, uh, 1783 to 1850, author of Rip Van Winkle and the Legend of Sleepy Hollow, was a student of myth and legend. From 1804 to 1806, Irving undertook a tour of Europe and would undoubtedly have heard of the wise men of Gotham. In 1807, he wrote an article for a New York periodical called the Salma Gundy papers in which he compared the avarice and wish for wealth of the New Yorkers as being mad like Gothamites. The name stuck and central New York today is referred to as Gotham City though in an American style they mispronounce it as Gotham rather than the correct Gotham. Now Bob Kane was a comic book artist and writer for DC Comics and in 1939 he created his Batman character and based him in Gotham City. The world through Batman has heard of Gotham but few realise its name is taken from this village. So it's a quiet day in Gotham City. <laughs> <laughs> there you are. So what do you think of that, Graham? Yeah, it's good, yeah. Fantastic, yeah. So, have you had a nice time in Nottingham? I certainly have. Yeah, it's been a great time in Nottingham, yeah. It's really been fascinating, hasn't it? Yeah, great stuff, learning all about and going around the, the cave below Nottingham City Centre and uh, the, the, the trip to Jerusalem pub and, and now coming to, to this village connected with Batman. Fantastic. Thank you, Graham, for being a great tour guide as ever. Thank you. And it's bye from myself and bye from Graham. Bye. bye. And from Nottingham, our thoughts now move towards London this coming weekend uh, and the great ceremonial of the coronation of King Charles III. With the hope of good weather, though you'll hear, you hear uh, you've heard in the news that uh, that is a hope, I think, which is a little forlorn, uh, but I hope we can still enjoy ourselves with festivities. Now, just before I go, though, uh, I am sorry to say that due to a combination of clashing holidays and sickness, we will be unable to bring you an Outlook programme on the week after next, that's the 17th of May, but we will be back next week. So with that, it's goodbye from the Outlook team and from me, Nigel Hewin, until next week.